Well, good morning. I am very honored to get to be with you, and I uh, am so grateful for the invitation to come and grateful for Ken. Uh, this is the man that passed the baton to me. He served as the president at Ozark Christian College uh, before I did, served there for 27 years. And I know this, and I'm confident you know this, you have a good man leading this congregation. You do, and you should be grateful. You bet. And uh, I'm also very glad to, to share a, a good report about my wife. Uh, I want to thank you for your prayers. When she was diagnosed with cancer, um, she decided to name her tumor. Uh, she named it Jezebel and uh, <laughs> prayed that God would smite it dead, just as he did Jezebel in the Bible. And God did that uh, in uh, response to prayers, and so thank you. Um, she, she remains clear, and, and so we're just very grateful for God's goodness there. Well, I have a message today that I'm very excited to share with you. So if you have your Bibles, would you grab them, your Bible devices, and crank them open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is the passage I want to look at with you here in just a few moments. So if you'll hold that, we'll look at that together, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And let me begin this way. Andy Stanley said, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. July 1st, 1898, Cuba, Spanish-American War, at the bottom of San Juan Hill sat Lieutenant Colonel Teddy Roosevelt. He was preparing to lead the charge against 750 Spanish soldiers that had been ordered to hold the heights. Now, it was just a few weeks before that he had resigned his civilian commission as Assistant Secretary of the Navy so that he could join the active military. He said, someday I want to be able to explain to my kids why I did fight in the war, not why I didn't. And so on that July morning, Teddy Roosevelt strapped on his boots and he led his Rough Rider Regiment in the charge up that hill under withering Spanish gunfire and ultimately on to victory. And for his courage, Teddy Roosevelt was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. June 6, 1944, Normandy, France, World War II. Off the most heavily fortified coast in history in the troop transport ships sat Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt, Jr. President Roosevelt had four boys, and he poured himself into his sons. He wanted them to grow up to be men, and so he told them uh, stories of courage and, and bravery, and he taught them how to, how to shoot a gun and how to hunt and how to ride a horse. In fact, when the Japanese ambassador was coming over to visit the White House, Teddy Roosevelt wired him and said, bring your sumo champions with you. I want to teach my boys how to wrestle. And so they did, right there in the living room of the White House, his boys and these big sumo guys. And he wanted to instill in his sons this passion for life and, and a sense of duty and leadership and patriotism. And that's why, as the Allies prepared for that D-Day invasion, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. had insisted that he lead the charge. Now, at first, his superiors in the Pentagon had denied his request. They said, no way, you're, you're 57 years old. No other general is going ashore with the first wave of troops, and, and besides, it would be bad PR if a Roosevelt died on the first day of the battle, but Teddy Roosevelt Jr. insisted. He said, it will steady the men to know that I am with them. And so finally, after his third request, the Pentagon relented, and on that June morning, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. strapped on his 
boots and led the charge up the beach under withering German gunfire and ultimately on to victory. And for his courage, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, just like his dad. Now, President Roosevelt accomplished many great things in his life, but perhaps one of his greatest was shaping the man in the next generation, his own son, who would lead one of the most decisive battles of the 20th century. Somebody said that the legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next, and that's true. No matter how impressive your accomplishments might be, your legacy is not complete until you have prepared those who will carry on the work after you are gone. When I was in high school, I ran track. I was the third leg of the four by 800 meter relay. And my coach used to say to us, boys, races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. No matter how hard I had run my leg, I knew that my job was not complete until I had successfully passed that baton to the next runner. There is no success without a successor. And one of the most important questions that you can ask yourself, whether this is in the workplace or in your home or even here at church, one of the most important questions you can ask yourself is this, am I passing the baton? Because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Nobody understood that better than the Apostle Paul. You got your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This letter, as you probably know, was written by the Apostle Paul. Preacher, theologian, missionary. I have no idea how many pairs of sandals Paul had worn out, traipsing all over the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, planting churches. I mean, he had done so many great things for God, and yet he knew that his ministry was not complete until he had raised up those who would carry on his work after him. And so as you read through his letters, you come across the names of young men that he is investing himself in, guys like Titus and and Silas and Mark and Tychicus. But Paul invested himself in no one more than Timothy. Timothy was his most trusted helper. In fact, Timothy was the son that Paul never had. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he will call him my dear son, my beloved son. And for the last 15 years, Paul has taken Timothy with him on his missionary journeys, taking him under his wing, pouring himself into this young man, teaching him, training him, mentoring him. And as Paul writes this letter of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing from prison. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, so Paul was like always in prison, right? And you would be correct. Paul is what we would call a repeat offender. Are you following me here? He is always getting thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, but this time is different because this time Paul knows he's not getting out. He is seated on death row in just a few short weeks he will die. Someone said that 2 Timothy was written in the shadow of the executioner's sword. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last words that we have from the hand of Paul, Paul will write this. He said, my life is being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul knows that races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. And so this letter, 2 Timothy, marks the moment of exchange because his message through this whole letter is this, Timothy, carry on my ministry. 
Grab the baton. Hold on tight. Run hard, Timothy. You're the next leg in the relay, just as Joshua followed Moses, just as Elisha followed Elijah. So, Timothy, you must follow me. Carry on my ministry. And the verse that I want to look at with you, if you've got your Bibles open, is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Follow along here as we read what Paul writes. He says this, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now you're following what Paul's saying there, right? He's saying, Timothy, I have passed the baton to you. Now you, Timothy, must pass the baton to other qualified people who will in turn pass the baton to others. Timothy, let the relay continue. Let the chain remain unbroken because the legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next. Now, I just want to say again, I'm really honored to be with you here this weekend at Crossroads. And I came today to say two things. The first thing that I want to say is well done. Because you are, you are doing this. You are passing the baton, raising up the next generation of kingdom leaders right here at this church. Was it not cool to see all of these young people on the stage today? How cool was that? That was amazing. And... Man, you, you make your children's ministries, your student ministries, a priority here. And as I was looking at these, uh, you know, uh, children's choir up here, I was trying to pick out, now, which one of those is the future elder, all right? Because he's in there somewhere. And those are future Sunday school teachers and youth group sponsors, and you are raising up that next generation of kingdom leaders. And so I, I just want to commend you. Well done. The second thing that I came to say, and and... This is, this is really a, a very specific challenge. This is the burden of this message this morning. Not only must we be raising up the next volunteer leaders of the church, but we must also be calling young men and women into vocational Christian leadership. We must be calling young men and women into vocational Christian ministry, young men and women who will use their working lives to lead the church and to preach the word and to reach the lost. We've got to be calling them into vocational Christian ministry. Now, that, that is my passion. I'm a preacher, but for the last 20 years, I'm also a teacher of preachers. I have spent the last two decades raising up young men, teaching them there at the Bible college how to preach the gospel, how to, how to lead a church. And I do that because I have a very deep conviction, and it's this. Preaching really matters. Now, to a lot of people, that would be kind of a goofy statement because, you know, I mean, we, you know, you've probably heard the jokes about preaching. I've heard the jokes about preaching. In fact, I will tell you a joke about preaching. Have you heard the one about the preacher, the elder, and the deacon who went deer hunting? They're out in the woods when suddenly a huge buck walks across a clearing. The preacher and the elder both raise their rifles at the exact same moment. They fire simultaneously. The buck goes down, but they don't know which one of them shot the deer. Well, the deacon hops up and he says, wait right here, I'll go check it out. I'll tell you whose deer it is. Runs across the clearing and after a few moments examining, he hops up and he says, it's, it's the preacher's buck. The preacher shot the deer. Well, the elder says, how do you know that? How can you tell that, that the preacher shot it? And the deacon said, well, uh, look right here. You can see the, the bullet went in one ear and right out the other. 
<laughs> and that's how we kind of think about preaching sometimes. It's kind of a punchline. It's kind of a joke. I mean, really, how silly, ineffective. I mean, preaching doesn't make any real difference in the real world, right? Well, the Bible paints a completely different picture because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this. He says that in his wisdom, it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching, he might save those who believe. Did you hear that? God chose the foolishness of preaching to save the world. I teach preaching classes there at the Bible college, and I tell my, my guys that, man, when they grab their Bible on a Sunday morning and when they make their way to, to stand on stage, there is seated before them a broken heart in every pew. Probably somewhere near the back, there is a college student there that morning um, who was dragged there by his parents against his will. And seated right up here is probably a, a tired mother of preschoolers. And right over here is a teacher who is struggling with a difficult temptation. And right back over there is a businessman who has been so discouraged. He has actually thought about suicide this week. High school sophomore, pregnant. And seated right back there in her usual spot is a widow who is still grieving her loss. And I tell my guys that when they grab their Bible and they make their way to the pulpit and they set their Bible down and they deal their note cards out there on the pulpit like a riverboat gambler, the stakes have never been higher. Because when they open that book, hear me, God's Word has the power to absolutely transform every single one of those lives. You know what I'm reminded of this the most? It's when I'm preaching a bad sermon. Now, I'm sure this never happens to Ken, you understand, but um, sometimes I preach a sermon that I can tell it's just not working today. I mean, it is just not connecting. And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, in fact, I had a friend in, in Bible college. Uh, one weekend, he went out to go preach at this little church, and the sermon that morning was a clunker. I mean, he knew it was bad. They knew it was bad. But church people are, like, super nice. And so afterwards, out in the lobby, you know, they're shaking his hand. They're saying, oh, nice job, nice job, nice sermon, nice job. One lady said, nice try. <laughs> uh, I've had my share of nice try sermons, all right? And on those mornings when I'm just doing a homiletical belly flop, baby, I mean, on those mornings, I just want to get out of there as fast as I can, you know? I mean, I just, I'll go home, I'll try again next week. But God, in like his celestial sense of humor, a lot of times he gives me my best response to my worst sermons. Just to kind of remind me, you know, that it's not about me. And so, you know, my sermon's done, and, and we're singing the invitation song, but we're just singing one verse because I want to be to hasty retreat. But no, here's people walking down the aisle, and there's folks making decisions for Christ. And, you know, here's, here's some lady, and she's shaking my hand, and she's saying, oh, you, you have no idea how that touched me. And I'm thinking, you're right. I have no idea how that touched you. <laughs> and, and yet, and yet, if I'm honest, I do know how that touched her because as ineffective as my words may have been, God's word is still divinely effective. The promise of Isaiah chapter 55, God says, my word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God's word is powerful. I love, I love what one preacher says. His name is Leonard Sweet. Leonard Sweet says that on the, on the front cover of his Bible, he has engraved the letters TNT. 
because he says this book is a stick of dynamite. This book will, it, it will, it will blast sinful habits. It will, it, it will, it will explode those, those sinful old, old uh, thoughts in your mind. It will detonate new devotion. He says this book can, can release enough energy to move any mountain and mend any life. And he says that if I hear one more time some Christians sigh and say, oh, the, the church just can't compete with Hollywood. He says, I'm going to twist somebody's tongue. It is Hollywood that can't compete with the Holy Word. Nothing on earth can compare with the power of God's Word to transform lives. And I tell my guys that when they grab their Bible and they make their way to that stage on that Sunday morning, oh, physical eyes, they may just see some guy who's getting ready to monologue for 30 minutes from some 2,000-year-old book on a sleepy Sunday morning. But spiritual eyes see something totally different because at that moment, as that stubborn college student and that tempted teacher and that grieving widow sit there, at that moment, there are 10,000 angels leaning over the balcony of heaven and they are holding their breath, wondering what will happen if this time these souls really hear. And there are 10,000 demons that are glaring up through the gates of hell and they are licking their lips hoping no one will pay attention. The air is charged with supernatural possibilities because all of heaven and all of hell knows that eternity literally hangs in the balance. And if that word is humbly received, those lives will never be the same. Proud hearts will be broken. Wounded spirits will be bound up. Spiritual adrenaline will surge through weary souls. Whole biographies will be rewritten. Final, eternal destinies permanently changed. And when that young man grabs that Bible and he makes his way to the stage, he is a combatant in the battle of the ages and the entire cosmos is watching. There is nothing greater that you can do with your life. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the world. Preaching really matters. All of which means this. We need more preachers. We need more youth ministers. We need more children's ministers. We need more missionaries. We need more church planters. We need more young men and women who will dedicate their lives to taking this word to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Now, um, you, um, you know demographics well enough, uh, to know that the baby boom generation is nearing the retirement age right now. This huge American generation uh, is retiring. And what that means is that there is a whole generation of ministers and missionaries who are heading into retirement. They are preparing to step out of ministry. They have run their leg of the race. My question this morning is, who will take their place? And you understand that the church is not just called to supply ministers and missionaries at a replacement rate. We're called to supply them at a growth rate. The job is not just to keep the ranks filled. It's to increase their tribe. Because you remember the story, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is looking out over the crowd. It says that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that Jesus' heart was moved with compassion. And he turned to his disciples and he said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Um, I brought a quiz with me here this morning. It's 
I'm a teacher, it's what I do, okay? And, uh, and let's see how well you, you do on this quiz. There are gonna be some questions that pop up on the screen. You, you, you keep score here. Question number one. Indiana has a Christian church for every 10,000 people in your state. If we wanted to reach that ratio in the New York City metro area, how many new churches would have to be planted? Answer, 2,000. Who's going to plant those churches? Question number two. Of the 6,500 languages in the world, how many of them have no Scripture translated into that language? Answer, of those 6,500 languages, 4,000. Who will translate those Scriptures? Question number three. Of the 16,000 people groups, ethnic groups in the world, how many of those ethnic groups are unreached? And by that we mean less than 2% of them are Christians. Answer, 7,000 people groups. Who will reach those ethnic groups for Christ? Question number four, just two more questions. If every current Bible college student in America right now was a missionary, how many people would each one of those students have to tell about Jesus so that the whole world could hear? You figured out my pattern here, right? <laughs> one million. Each one of those students would have to tell one million. Last question. How many people die without Christ around the world every minute? You know the answer, 62. One every second, a soul going into a Christless eternity. Hear me, the harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. And so my question for you this morning is this, Crossroads, who are you raising up? Are you passing the baton? Can I take the last minutes that I have here in this message and could I give you three practical suggestions for how you as a, as a church, how you as an individual could help raise up that next generation of kingdom leaders? And I'm going to frame these, these three suggestions up as questions. Here's question number one. Will you say something? Will you say something? When you see a young person, or maybe it's a mid-career person, but when you see someone that you think has kingdom leadership potential, would you plant a seed thought in their Mine. Now, that, that might be the straight-A kid in the youth group because, listen, God's mission in the world deserves the very best. We need the cream of the crop out there advancing the kingdom of Jesus. But I'm also reminded of um, what President George W. Bush once said. This was at a, a commencement address at a college. I believe it was Yale University, his alma mater, and he was speaking at commencement, and he said, to all of you A students graduating with honors, I say congratulations. To all of you C-minus students, I say, you too could one day be president of the United States. <laughs> and you know what? It might be that C-minus student there in the youth group. It might be that rowdy kid that's over in the corner of the, of the youth group making all kinds of trouble. That might be the one that's got some leadership potential. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has a habit of taking the weak things of the world to shame the, the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And when you see that person who has that ministry potential, 
Would you just say something to them? Would you plant that seed in their mind? D.P. Schaefer was an 80-year-old preacher in Connettville, Pennsylvania, still preaching 80 years old. And one Sunday morning, they were having Youth Sunday at their church. And during the service, a little first-grade boy got up on stage, and he quoted from memory a large portion of John chapter 14. And afterwards, D.P. Schaefer went up, and he he patted that that little first-grader on the head, and he said, wow, that was great. He said, you would make a good preacher someday. That little boy's name was Bob Russell, who went on to go preach at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky for 40 years, grew that church from 120 to 20,000 plus people. And your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Will you say something? Question number two. Will you pray something? Will you pray something? When you see that young person who might have ministry potential, the very best thing you can do for them is to begin to pray for them. Pray for them by name. Pray that they would hear God's call into ministry if that's his will for their lives. That's what Jesus told us to do. Matthew chapter 9, ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for his harvest field. When you, when you walk out the doors today, you will see out in the in the lobby. I've got a table there with some uh, literature about the Bible college where I serve, and I hope you'll help yourself to that. But what I especially hope you'll pick up is I have a whole bunch of these keychain tabs on the table out there. And on the keychain tabs, you'll just see this phrase. It says, just one. And that is meant to be a prayer reminder for you to pray for just one young person to hear the call of God in the ministry. I have one of these on my keychain, and every time I see that, um, I pray for a young man named Jonathan Nunez. Jonathan is 16. He lives in my city, and a great kid. Uh, Comes from kind of a rough family background, but man, he's got such a great heart, and I see leadership potential in him, and I've told him this, uh, but I'm, I'm praying for him. He's my just one. Who will be your just one? Who will you pray for? Can I tell you my, my personal testimony? When I was growing up, I knew I was supposed to be a preacher. Man, when I, was in, when I was in junior high, when I was in seventh grade, the ritual was the same every single Sunday. My hometown preacher, we called him Brother Bill, every Sunday, Brother Bill would go stand at the back door after church, and he'd shake everybody's hands as they'd, as they'd walk out. And every Sunday when I was in junior high, the ritual was always the same. When it was my turn uh, to shake Brother Bill's hand out the door, he would ask me the same two questions every single Sunday, seventh grade. He'd grab my hand, and he'd say, Matt, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd say, a preacher, because <laughs> puberty is a killer, man. And, uh, <laughs> and he'd say, where are you going to go to college? And I'd say, Ozark Christian College. And he'd say, that's my boy. And he'd slap me on the back and he'd send me out the door. I just knew I was supposed to be a preacher. But when I got into high school, I got sidetracked. I was a very good student in high school. I was a National Merit Scholar. And so I got a big academic scholarship to the University of Iowa. And so I scrapped all of my plans for Bible college, scrapped my plans for ministry, kind of did a Jonah. I ran away from the call of God on my life. And instead, I enrolled at the University of Iowa as a journalism major. Tom Brokaw went to the University of Iowa. I was going to go be the next Tom Brokaw, fame, fortune, make a name for myself in the world. And that year at the U of I was not a good year for me spiritually. I was a prodigal son in a far-off country. I was not living under the lordship of Christ. 
But after that year, um, the following summer, I got a job working at a Christian summer camp. I liked working outside, and so I was the, you know, the wood chopper and the grass cutter and trash picker upper. And, and every night at, at all these weeks of camp, um, they would have chapel service for the kids. And, and so I would usually go, and I would stand in the, in the back of the chapel during the music time because I kind of liked the worship bands. I thought the music was pretty cool. But when the preacher would get up to preach, I would leave. I didn't want to hear it didn't want to be convicted. But during the ninth grade week of camp, the preacher for the week um, was a guy named Bob Martin. Bob Martin was just this little guy, like 5'2", maybe 5'3", on a good day, just this short little dude. And, and not what you might think of as a dynamic youth speaker, you know, he's going to get up and preach to thousands of teens on stage. But I'm telling you that during that ninth grade week of camp, I'd be standing in the back of the chapel, Bob Martin would get up to preach, and I couldn't leave because his words just reached out and they grabbed a hold of me. And all week long during his messages, man, the Holy Spirit just began to do this blitz on my heart, conviction. And, and if you've ever been to a week of, of church camp, summer camp, um, then you know how the last night of camp always goes. Because last night of church camp, they always have an invitation time. It's always super emotional. And there's always this herd of junior high girls that comes down at the invitation time and they're crying. And they're rededicating their life to Jesus for the 17th time, you know. And, and, uh, and that's just the way every camp ever goes. Well, this week, no different. Ninth, ninth grade week of camp, last night, invitation song, whole little herd of ninth grade girls comes down the aisle. They're all weeping and standing right there in the middle of them was one college freshman guy and I stood up in front of that camp and I just had to repent and confess that man I'd been running away from God I was not right with God I was a Jonah and and it was time for me to to come back and to get right and and for me that meant following God's call in my life going to Bible college and being a preacher and um and what I did not know at the time I found this out later was that Bob Martin he knew my story he knew I was being a Jonah. Because what I did not know at the time, I found this out later, was that my hometown preacher, Brother Bill, was Bob Martin's brother-in-law. <laughs> and he totally ratted me out, man. He told on me. And, and what I did not know at the time, but I found this out later, was that Bob Martin had fasted that entire week and every single day, he had prayed for me by name. And I believe the reason I am standing here today is because Bob Martin prayed me back into the kingdom and prayed me right into ministry. Now hear me. Yeah, yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Somebody is waiting out there for you to pray them into ministry. I don't know who your just one is, but your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Will you pray? Last question. Will you pay something? Will you pay something? Will you financially invest in the preparation of future kingdom leaders? Now, I'm a Bible college president, and so you should expect me to ask for money. That's what I do, all right? That's a pretty fair portion of my job description is, is fundraising. And, and, uh, and in fact, somebody said that when a Bible college president dies, uh, the Bible verse that they put on your tombstone is Luke 16, 22. And then the beggar died. <laughs> 
And, and, you know, people ask me sometimes, isn't that hard, you know, to, to go ask people for money? And to be honest, my answer is not if you believe in the mission. Because our mission as a college is to raise up, train men and women who will take the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. I believe in that mission. I will ask for money for that eight days a week. Listen, the U.S. Army has West Point to train up leaders for our nation's physical battles. And we as taxpayers, as taxpayers, we underwrite a West Point cadet's education because we believe that leadership is important. Well, the church has Bible colleges and seminaries that are raising up leaders for the spiritual battle. And it is fitting for us as Christians to help underwrite those students' education because we believe that leadership is important. And you guys are doing that. This church is one of our supporters as a Bible college. And here's what I love, that when you, when you support a Bible college, when you support a student training for ministry, the, the return on that investment is huge. Because you are not just affecting that one life, the life of that leader. You are also affecting all of the lives that that leader will someday touch. Dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people. I'm telling you, the return on that investment, it is massive and it is eternal. Last story and, and then I'm done. You may not recognize the name Dr. Gilbert Bilizikian. Dr. Gilbert Bilizikian is a theology professor at a Christian college up around Chicago. And... Dr. B, as his students like to call him, um, would lecture every day on his uh, given subject, but always at the end of the hour, he would leave just a, a few minutes, and he would close his folder, and he'd step around in front of the lectern, and he would just dream out loud with his students about the church. His passion was the church. And he, from Belgium, he's got this French accent. Dr. B would say, oh, students. Oh, have you, have you read Acts 2, God's idea called the church? Oh, it is beautiful. The, the believers there were ablaze with love for Christ, and they dug deeply into Scripture together. There was no one who had any needs because if, if someone needed something, they'd just sell what they had and take care of one another. And oh, they, they boldly preached the truth in the marketplace, and they would welcome in wounded people to, to heal them. And oh, that church was breathtaking. Thousands were added to their number daily. Oh, students, what would happen if today there was a church like the one in Acts 2? Students, the church, the local church, that's the hope of the world. And one semester, Dr. B had in his class, seated right here on the front row, a 20-year-old student who, is, as Dr. B was just bleeding this vision of, of the power of a, of a church. Man, that student caught it. His heart just about beat out of his chest. He was so excited. And afterwards, he came up to, to Dr. B and he said, Dr. B, by God's grace, I want to lead a church like that. That young man's name was Bill Hybels, who went on to go plant Willow Creek Community Church up around Chicago, one of our nation's largest churches, flagship congregation, 20, 30,000 people. Now, this was actually just a, a few years ago. Willow Creek there in Chicago they wanted to have a combined Easter service. Everybody, 20,000, 30,000 people, all in, all in one service. And so they rented the United Center there in Chicago where the, where the Chicago Bulls play. And they all came for this one Easter service. And as everybody walked in the door, they gave everyone a, um, a little keychain with a little flashlight on the end. And at the very end of the Easter service, after the songs and communion and preaching, last thing 
they did. The worship director, her name was, it was Nancy, got up on stage and she said, now, I would like for the lights to be turned out. And someone was back there at that big bank of lights, boom, 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 boom. And soon the whole arena is pitch black. And then she said, if you were introduced to Jesus Christ because of the ministry of this church, if you met Jesus because of Willow Creek, would you turn your light on? And at first, you know, a few dozen lights winked on and then hundreds and soon thousands of lights across this arena, lives changed. And she said, keep your lights on. We want to take a picture and they had a camera with that, you know, panoramic setting to get a picture of all these thousands of lights. And, and, and I don't know what the odds of this are. You can see the picture to this day. But at the very moment they were taking that big panoramic picture of all those lights, someone right down here on the front row snapped a little flash photograph. And so in that picture, you can actually see one, one face. One face was illuminated by that little flash. And it's the face of Dr. B, seated right down there on the front row. And he has turned around and he is looking at all of those lights, eyes wide, tears streaming down his cheek because he is seeing what happened because he passed the baton to just one. Now, can I tell you what I hope happens for you someday? I hope someday when when we get to heaven, that Jesus will call all of the citizens of heaven together. He will assemble them in some great arena there. And as everyone is seated, he will call to the stage that kingdom leader that you helped recruit, that you prayed for, that you paid for. And he will call that leader on stage and he'll put his arm around that young man, that young woman. And he, he will say, now I, I would like for the lights to go off and for a moment at least it will be dark in heaven boom 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 and then Jesus will say if you were influenced for my kingdom by this one let your light shine and in heaven you know we won't need flashlights we'll just glow <laughs> and dozens hundreds maybe thousands of lights will begin to shine and what I hope is that at that moment, you have a seat right down there in the front row. And as you turn around and see all of those lights with tears streaming down your face, you will thank God for the return on that investment that you made in just one kingdom leader because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Pass the baton. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those who told us about Jesus. We know there are so many in the world who have yet to hear, who do not know the name of Christ. And Father, we pray that right out of this church you would raise up a generation, a, a tidal wave of kingdom workers, young men and women who will take the gospel to a world that so desperately 
needs to hear it. Use this church to pass the baton for your glory and for the world's good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.